We are finishing, as it were, this evening, our focus on Jeremiah 31 through 33 and the elements surrounding the new covenant. Uh, Several weeks ago, at the end of Jeremiah 31, I preached a message forging a link between the Old Testament teaching on the new covenant, particularly found in Jeremiah 31, and uh, the New Testament concepts of, of salvation by grace. And as I did so, uh, I attempted to reveal in a generally simplistic way the nature of the new covenant as it relates to the church. Uh, We hold a position here, or at least I preached a position several weeks ago, which is generally understood to be a majority position, that the church functions under the results of the new covenant, that the new covenant and salvation aren't the same thing. We'll talk about that more tonight, but that we function under the results uh, and the promises of the new covenant. I reflected this teaching uh, to you, drawing links to New Testament teaching, particularly on the new covenant in Hebrews 8, which calls Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. And we link those promises to the New Testament teachings in regard to, uh, again, God formally replacing the law, the old covenant, with something better. It was a survey. It was intended to show us the fruit of the new covenant in this age. And yet after that message, I spoke to several people um, who had mentioned, who asked me about those who had different perspectives on the matter. And... um, There's a vocal minority within not just our circles, but within uh, Christianity generally, who believe that because the old covenant was exclusive to Israel, that the new covenant is likewise exclusive to Israel, and that we are not a part of the new covenant, that that what we have in, in Christ might look similar to the new covenant, but that it is not the same. And there were several questions I received about these things uh, to the extent that I, I felt as though I should probably give a little bit more clarity on this, just so that as you live and as you speak with others, if, if these elements were to come up, you would understand perhaps a little bit better um, the nature of the covenants that God has laid out and the new covenant in, particu- uh, in particular. So that is what I would like to do today before moving on to Jeremiah 34. To make some clarifications about the New Covenant, I'm not going to um, spend time rebutting other views. I I don't see a lot of value in that. Instead, I'm going to make positive assertions about what we would believe from the Word of God, um, and and hopefully in doing so it might uh, handle or or address several points of uh, controversy or of of confusion that um, people might have drawn from other sources or whatever the case may be. Now, there are any number of covenants in the Bible. We see a covenant in the days of Noah. We see a covenant, even in Jeremiah 33, God spoke of his covenant with Levi. But as it relates to what we would often call God's kingdom program, and we talked about this quite a bit at the beginning of our Revelation series, the fact that God has an overarching plan to bring about this kingdom, a, 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 a desire that God has always had within his heart to have this Creation that loved him and served him, right? And, and so God will be bringing about through history this kingdom program. And as it relates to this kingdom program, we generally regard five very important covenants to be in play. The first covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And of course, this is kind of the, the, the mother of all covenants. This covenant gave, given to Abraham, promised him the land, the seed, and the blessing through his posterity. Naturally, this uh, promise contained within it the assurances that Messiah would come through his line. The second covenant that we find is the Mosaic covenant. We find this in Exodus 19 through 24. This is a covenant made with the nation of Israel at Sinai with all of the blessings and the cursings that come along with it. The third covenant that we find is what's often called the Palestinian covenant. That can get a little bit confusing today because uh, there's uh, a a, a region called Palestine that has absolutely nothing to do with what Palestine once was, right? Palestine was a designation that the uh, Roman Empire gave to the region that we would generally call Canaan or Israel. It it encompassed more than just Israel at the time that the Roman Empire uh, had control of it, but they called that region Palestine. Uh, Naturally, today, Palestine conjures up images of a 
terrorist-run state that wants to see the, the nation of Israel taken off the face of the earth and every Jew obliterated and destroyed. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the Palestinian covenant, right? Palestinian covenant was simply God's promise that the land of Israel, that, that the, the land that was Canaan in Abraham's day is Israel's right by per, uh, in, in perpetuity, that God has said that they, that, that is their land eternally. The fourth covenant we see is one in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. God promised to David that there would never fail to be a man from his lineage to sit upon the throne of David, upon his throne. And of course, this promise continues through to Jesus Christ himself, who is of the lineage of David. And then finally, this new covenant, Jeremiah 31, really 31 through 33, which is the covenant that God announced as a replacement for the Mosaic Covenant, right? The, the, the covenant that God announced intended by God to change the way Israel fellowshiped with God, change the structure of their relationship with Him. It, he would give them the new heart. He would give them uh, the, the desire to serve Him. They would be His people. He would be their God. And then He could usher in all of these blessings. Now, when we talk about these covenants, we find them in two distinct categories. We find these covenants... Some of them, all but one, in fact, to be unconditional. But we also find one particular conditional covenant. The concept of conditional and unconditional covenants is quite basic, but it is also very important. Now, when we talk about a conditional covenant, a conditional covenant is a covenant between two parties where the outcome of the covenant is dependent upon the actions and circumstances of both parties. So a conditional covenant... There must be elements of that covenant. Uh, the agreement must be met. The conditions of the covenant must be met in order for all of the particular results of the covenant to take place. Now, we typically call these contracts in our day, right? A contract, it, two people enter into an agreement. Each side promises to fulfill their end of the bargain. They agree upon a standard. You're going to do this. I'm going to do this. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. And you lay out a contract so that both parties know what is expected of them and both parties know what they can expect of the other. Now, in our society of relative dishonor, contracts often don't mean much anymore. But the idea of a contract is the same as a conditional covenant. Benefits are promised, but they are made conditioned upon certain actions or circumstances. An unconditional covenant is, of course... The opposite. An unconditional covenant is a covenant between two parties where the outcome of the covenant is guaranteed regardless of actions or circumstances. A great example of an unconditional covenant is marriage, right? Within a marriage, when a man and a woman get up in front of witnesses and make those marriage vows, those vows, uh, in truth, traditionally, are unconditional in nature. The man vows love and faithfulness to a woman regardless of circumstance and action. Likewise, a woman vows love and faithfulness to the man regardless of circumstances and actions. There are no conditions generally made upon which those benefits are received, at least in, in, in typical or conventional wedding vows. The man does not say, as long as you have dinner ready, when I get home every night, I will love you. If that were, if that were the vows then there would be a big question mark as to whether any woman's going to enter into, to, to, does he really love me or does he just want dinner, you know? The woman doesn't say, as long as you make so much money, I will love you. It's not like that. It's, till death do us part, I will do this for you. You don't hear anywhere in the man's part of the covenant, I will do this if you do it back. It's, I will do this, rich or poor, sickness and health. Till death do us part. End of, end of vow. No, no asterisk. No fine print. That's at least not the way it's said. I mean, that may not be what's in their mind, but that's what they've said with their mouths before God. Same with the woman. Honor, cherish, love, sickness, health, richer, poorer, good times, bad times, till death do us part. No conditions. That is the general idea of the unconditional 
vow, 100% free of conditions. And so the promises are expected to be received regardless of personal worth. Whether or not the man does what he ought to do, the woman's going to do her part. Whether or not the woman does what she ought to do, the man's going to do his part. I give 100% to my wife no matter how much she's giving to me. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's a 100-100 proposition because that's how those vows, that, that's, that's what comes out of our mouths at least. Now, these are the two types of covenants that the Bible expresses. Now, understand how these factor into these kingdom covenants. As we look at these first four kingdom covenants, particularly those that were made uh, earlier, what we find is that there's a definitive relationship between these covenants. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. How do we know that the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional? If you go back to Genesis 15, what you'll find is that God tells Abraham in Genesis 15 to take animals and to kill those animals. And then in characteristic, culturally customary fashion, he took the larger animals and he cut them in half. And he put one side on, on one side of a hill, and he put one, side on, uh, one half on the other side of the hill, and then the smaller things, birds and whatnot, they didn't cut in half, they just put them on, this, on any side of the hill. And all the blood would run into a common pool in the center. And then what would generally happen after that point is that the two parties of the covenant would both give their conditions and their assurances. And then they would each walk through the blood of, that, of all of those animals, thus ratifying the covenant and saying that because they have walked through this blood effectively, may my blood be shed if I don't fulfill my, my, my bargain or may all of the things that the, all, all of the, the conditions be forfeited if I do not fulfill this covenant, depending on the nature of the covenant. But it was bound with blood. It was a blood oath, if you want to call it that, and this was the nature of the covenant. But in Genesis 15, we find something very interesting happen. Abraham sets out these animals, and then he spends all day chasing away buzzards and whatnot that would try to pick at these animals. And then at the end of that time, the Bible says God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And in that deep sleep, God gave all of these promises to Abraham that he would do these things, that he would make of him a great nation, that, his, that, that they that bless Abraham would be blessed and they that cursed Abraham would be cursed and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And after God made all of these promises, of course, Abraham's, Abraham can't make any promises back. He's asleep, right? As God in this vision gives him all of these promises, then Abraham in the vision sees this light, as it were, pass through that blood. And then that's it. What do we see there? We see God bind himself to Abraham, pass through the blood, but Abraham doesn't. Abraham has no binding. Abraham has no promises that he made to God. Abraham has no obligations. This is a one-way covenant. God binding himself in promise to Abraham, but Abraham not having made any promises back. A unconditional covenant, a one-way covenant. We see similar realities as it relates to the land and to the seed, what we often call the Palestinian and Davidic covenants. In each case, God gave no conditions. God did not say to David on that day, David, if you do these things, I will, uh, I will make sure that your, your posterity uh, stays on the throne. It was, David, this is, this is my blessing to you. The same is uh, there with the land in Deuteronomy. God says, this land is your land. Now, this is not the case with the Mosaic Covenant, is it? And this is interesting because if the land, the seed, and the blessing are all outworkings, and again, if you want to get a little bit more of how all this relates, I encourage you to go back and listen to my two-part covenant series that I preached several years ago in 2 Samuel 7. But as it relates to the Mosaic Covenant, it is an extension of the blessing. The land, that was an unconditional promise coming out of the Abrahamic covenant. The seed, an unconditional promise coming out of the Abrahamic covenant. But the blessing also comes out of the Abrahamic covenant, and yet it roots itself into something that is very different in character from all the other covenants because it's a two-way covenant. 
It's unique in that it comes with distinct expectations. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. God says, I've got a, a, one end of the bargain, which is you will have no pestilence. You will have no famines. You will have no barren women. You will have no enemies that can stand against you. You will, all of these things I will give unto you if you keep my law. And if you don't keep my law, I will bring all of these cursings upon you. You will have famines and pestilence and barren wombs and your enemies will, will, be, will destroy you and all of these different things. Now, the fact that each of these covenants is an offshoot, as I mentioned, of the Abrahamic covenant demands that the Mosaic covenant can't be permanent. It can't be permanent. An unconditional covenant cannot be the outworking of a conditional one. It doesn't work that way. It can't. And thus, we see that the Mosaic Covenant must be a temporary covenant. And this is where the New Covenant comes in. The New Covenant brought the promises of God's blessing into the same realm of unconditional promises that the other covenants highlight. The New Covenant made provision for those demands by God binding himself to man. Again, giving man the divine and unconditional enablement to do what God has asked him to do. God would demand righteousness, but he would give those who enter into this new covenant the means by which to live in that righteousness, right? He would give them a new heart. He would, he would cause them to desire to know the Lord. And so God, in an unconditional way, would not only give the demands of righteousness, but then he would in himself fulfill in them the ability to work it out. The demands of the covenant would be fulfilled in them, but it would not be fulfilled by them. God would fulfill the conditions of the covenant in them himself because he would give them, again, that new heart. He would write his law upon their heart. He would bring them into a knowledge of the Lord. The Mosaic covenant was entered into by physical birth and circumcision on the eighth day, after which the person would spend the rest of their lives striving for the condition of blessings through obedience. The new covenant would be entered into in a different way. The new covenant would be entered into by a spiritual birth, a spiritual circumcision or baptism into the family of God, at which point the blessings of God were unconditionally secured as obedience is enabled divinely by God. Now, at this point, it's important to understand what the new covenant is and what the new covenant isn't. And I think a misunderstanding of this is why people have such divergent views as it relates to what the New Covenant is for. So what I'm going to do throughout this sermon is I'm going to give you, and it's going to be a little more academic, but I'm going to give you four points as it relates to the New Covenant to help you understand its character. And then we'll draw it to a conclusion in the end. So point number one, the New Covenant is not salvation, okay? The new covenant is entered into by salvation. And this is an important one because when we think of the new covenant, really what comes to my mind is salvation. I mean, new heart, knowing the Lord, right? But, but those are things that, that come from the new covenant, but they are derivations of salvation. It's not salvation itself. It's important to understand this, that when God was promising the new covenant, he wasn't promising in that sense them being born again. He was promising different results when they were born again. And we know this because when God speaks of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, he's speaking of something which is very, very yet future for them, right? He was speaking of a time when the Mosaic covenant would be superseded by something different and something better. Now, those of you who have been following our morning series, Christianity and the Law, of course, that, that's kind of coming together for you, right? The idea that the law is done away in Christ and the new covenant, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and we are not under the law because we are under Christ. So that should make a whole heap of sense to you. But we also understand that salvation did not begin with Christ, right? People have been getting saved since well before Jesus Christ showed up in, in the flesh, before God was manifest in the flesh. We studied this. We read in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Then we continued to read and we spoke of how David said, Blessed is the man unto whom God imputeth not 
his sin. Psalm 32, recognizing that David was saved by grace through faith as well, that he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So we understand then that salvation and the new covenant can't be one and the same because salvation pre-exists the new covenant by as long as there's been sin before the new covenant. And so we, we see that. But that doesn't mean that salvation looks the same today as it did in those days, as in the days of Abraham or as in the days of David. It, it's entered into the same way. It's still imputed righteousness. But there's something very different when a person gets saved today than when a person got saved in Abraham's day or in David's day. What is it that has changed? What is the difference between the justified believer in the Old Testament and the justified believer in the New Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, when they got saved, they were not given the indwelling Spirit of God. In the New Testament, when we get saved, we are given the indwelling Spirit of God. In fact, we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 6, among any other pa- many other passages, that if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you aren't in Christ. You aren't saved. If you, the moment you get saved, you receive the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So at the moment of salvation, we are given the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. So this distinction, the distinction between the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer is that we have been given the Spirit of God. And when did that Spirit fall? Well, we know that that Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. Now stay with me here because I'm building an argument and you need to follow it if you're going to understand my point. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death, we read this. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance." So we have this record of the Spirit of God falling upon the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. There appeared cloven tongues of fire above their heads. Uh, They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They began to speak in other tongues. Now, just as a brief side note, from this point on, as it relates to the Jews, the moment that the Holy Spirit of God filled a per, or came upon a person was the moment of their belief. Now that's different on the day of Pentecost, right? These people had already, they were already believers. Jesus told the disciples in John 15, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. These were already those who had received imputed righteousness by faith, but the new covenant hadn't been initiated yet. And because the new covenant hadn't been initiated yet, they did not receive the spirit of God. The same would be said of the Samaritans and of the Gentiles. There would come a point several weeks after Pentecost when Philip would go up to the Samaritans. He'd send down and he'd say, look, these people are believing. And then Peter went up there, laid hands on them, prayed for them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And then Cornelius, of course, the first Gentile, right? He has a vision, says, go get Peter. Peter comes to him. And as he's preaching to them this gospel of Jesus Christ, they believe they're filled with the Holy Ghost and from that point on, with, with a, a couple of, of very rare exceptions, we see implicitly that at the moment of belief, each person is filled with the Holy Ghost, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. There's no respecter of persons with God. So we have this instance, and this causes a, a great stir in Jerusalem because they have, they're speaking in tongues, 
They have these cloven um, tongues of fire above them. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. And this gives Peter a platform to explain what has just happened. And we read about that beginning in verse 14 of Acts 2. The Bible says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So follow this with me. Peter, being filled with the, the, the Holy Spirit, thus speaking by the Holy Ghost, divinely links the events of the day of Pentecost to the prophetic fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Joel speaks of the last days, that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, that young men, sons and daughters would prophesy, young men would see visions, old men would dream dreams, and the spirit would be poured out on servants and handmaidens. Now, all of this had just been realized at that moment on Pentecost. But as we know, and as we talk about regularly from the prophecy in Joel chapter 2, at verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. That does not happen until Jesus' second coming. So we see a, a, a strong divide between the day of Pentecost in uh, Joel and then the end times fulfillment there in the second part of Joel 2. These events had not yet happened, and indeed to this day they have not yet happened, being directly associated with Revelation chapter 6 and the sixth seal. And then Peter quotes that final verse that we talked about a few weeks ago in uh, Joel 2.32, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as I mentioned, we talked about this at length a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 33, where God said to the nation in verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. All of that, that, that announcement within the context of this new covenant teaching. So God directly linked their willingness to call to their regathering and to their receiving of the land, the seed, and the blessing. Blessings which, according to Jeremiah 30, would not take place until after the time of Jacob's trouble. And yet, though a large portion of these events would proceed after the new covenant are yet future for us, Peter makes it clear that the first part of the promise of Joel, the Spirit falling upon all flesh, had been realized on that day. And that this is evident and obvious by the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the men and women. To this end, then, the Spirit's filling at Pentecost was a sign that the new covenant had arrived. And that's where, where we're getting with this. The new covenant, again, those 120 believers, Jesus had called those tw at least the 12 He'd already said, you are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. They had already received imputed righteousness by faith. They'd already believed on Jesus Christ. But when the new covenant entered in, the Spirit of God fell upon them. They were given that new heart. They were, they, they, they were ushered into this new body called the church. And so the new covenant is not salvation. But then as we continue to see what happens... From that point on, when a person got saved, when they were born again, they received the Spirit of God. Thus, the new covenant becomes synonymous with salvation in this age, right? Because they happen at the same moment. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I enter into the new covenant. I am saved by grace through faith, and I am given the Holy Spirit of God as a sign that I have entered into that salvation by grace, and I'm living under this new covenant. The covenant is entered into by means of salvation, by grace through faith. 
And that naturally is we've connected quite firmly being faith in Jesus Christ who is the mediator of this new covenant. This not meaning, as some might affirm, that Jesus is an intermediary step between the old covenant and the new covenant, but as Hebrews 9 says in verses 15 through 17, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So Jesus is said to be the mediator of a new covenant, of a new testament. And Paul likens this new covenant because it's unconditional in nature. Because it's unconditional in nature, Paul likens this new covenant more to something like like a will than it is like a contract. Paul says in the same way that a will has a testator, someone who enumerates all the benefits of the testament, but they don't go into effect, they are not enacted until the time of his death. If I write a will and I say so-and-so gets all my money, so-and-so gets all my things... It's not until I die that that will comes into effect. As long as I'm alive, that will is just a piece of paper. Once I die, then that will becomes, it becomes authoritative. In the same way, Paul says, the promises of the New Testament have been in place ever since Jeremiah 31, really, right? That's when God says, I'm going to do this. This is when God lays out the promises of the New Covenant. This is when God says, I will give you these, this new heart, I will give you these new things. Of course, we see it going all the way back to Deuteronomy, but it's not really established until Jeremiah 31. But it could not be enacted until the death of the testator. After which, of course, right? The the death of the testator happened at Passover. That's the day that the one who made the promise, who made the will, that that this new covenant would be in effect, that's the day that, that he died. And 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost the force of the testament came into effect. Jesus mediated the transition between the old covenant and the new covenant through his death. And Jesus' death is the thing that grants God the judicial authority within the bounds of his justice to transition away from the old covenant and into the new. And this is what Paul, when Paul says that by means of Jesus Christ, God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's the idea. The new covenant was impossible until such time as there was a righteous man who died for the sins of others. Until there was a substitutionary atonement, the new covenant could not happen. But once the substitutionary atonement took place, then the new covenant could be done judicially. As Paul says, I through the law am dead to the law, right? And then the new covenant could come into effect. And that's what we see here. So, the new covenant is not salvation, but it is entered into by salvation. Point number two, the new covenant is not the olive tree of Romans 11, but it's access to the olive tree. Say, okay then, pastor, if the new covenant replaces the Mosaic covenant, which was given only to Israel, then the new covenant must only be for Israel, right? And that's that argument that we're going to talk about next. Shouldn't the new covenant only be for Israel? Well, it doesn't work that way because... This new covenant is linked biblically to the events that took place on Pentecost, the Spirit of God falling upon men. And at first, that makes perfect sense to just the Jews, right? Because everybody that was there on that day that received the Holy Spirit was the Jews. And this is why it was such a big deal when the Samaritans started receiving the Spirit of God, when the Gentiles started receiving the Spirit of God. Because at that moment, it became apparent that what God was doing, He opened up to all men and not just to the Jews. And this was startling to the Jews. This is why, this is why there had to be a vision that God gave to Peter for Peter to go to Cornelius and then to see with his own eyes the Spirit of God fall upon Cornelius. This is why uh, when, when we get to Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council that we talked about on Sunday morning a little while ago, this is why that was such a big deal when Peter says, I saw the Spirit of God fall upon the Gentiles, fall upon unclean men and women because something new is happening here. In Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10, we see those things take place, and thus we understand, and then we link this to what we learned last week about Jeremiah 33, where we see 
Jerusalem being called by the name, the Lord our righteousness, and link that to the new Jerusalem, in which is every tongue and every nation and every tribe. So that must be what Paul was talking about in Romans 11 when he wrote this. For if the casting away of them, that would be Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them, national Israel, be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, wert grafted among them, in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, The branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, Israel was broken off of this olive tree that the Gentile world could be grafted into the olive tree. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut off, uh, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, we have stated on any number of occasions, many of you know what's going on here in this passage. Uh, I, I hope most of you do because I am jumping into context a little bit. I apologize for that. But we've stated here that this passage is clearly not talking about salvation, right? That this olive tree into which Israel was broken off and we are grafted in and then we could be broken off and they can graft it in, this can't be salvation, right? Israel as a nation was never nationally saved. They were never all believers, right? Uh, they, they, they weren't broken off from salvation and we were broke, uh, set, brought into salvation. Uh, that, that doesn't make sense. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. The, Jew, the Jews have never had uh, some sort of special law access to being saved that the Gentiles had no access to. What the Jews did have special access to, however was first, that they received the revelation of God through the prophets. And second, they had a unique relationship with God by which they received unique divine blessings and through which they represented God's revelation to the rest of the world. So that we can say then that in Romans 11, as Paul is talking about the Israel being broken off of the olive tree and the Gentile world being grafted into the olive tree, and then warning that we, through unbelief, could be grafted out, and anticipating a day when the natural branches will be grafted back in, we're not talking about people getting saved and unsaved, whatever the case may be, but rather it's intended to represent that Israel once had a very unique and special relationship with God, by which God had chosen them to, represent, to be representatives of him to the world. But they failed at that. Jesus came with the offer of the kingdom and they said no. And they killed him. And God broke off their branch. He says, okay, I can't use you anymore. I'm going to use this new group of people made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, male and female, Jew and Gentile, called the church. And I'm going to put them into this place. In the Old Testament, Israel, they were a special people by virtue of the Mosaic Covenant, right? The Mosaic Covenant is what made them special. The Mosaic Covenant said, don't be like the nations around you. Don't tattoo your body. Don't shave your head. Don't do these things that are indicative of pagan worship. Don't be like those people that are around you. Be different. Be distinct. Be a royal priesthood. Be a chosen people. Represent yourself differently. And by representing yourself differently, you become a beacon on a hill. 
You are elevated above the world because you don't have the problems they have. You don't have the, the, the pestilence and the famine and those things. And people will come and they will see you and they will believe. And they will say, there must be something special about your God. And then they'll walk away believing that the God of Israel is the one true God. And we see this happen in the Old Testament. Particularly, we see it with the Queen of Sheba in the days of Solomon. She comes to visit and she sees him and she says, surely your God must be the God because your people are happy and you are happy and there's justice in your land and there's peace in your land. And then she walks away with this element of belief. And so this is that idea. Five would chase a hundred, a hundred would put 10,000 to flight. God would bless them. And the vehicle of this relationship was the Mosaic Covenant. When Jesus died and rose again and the Spirit fell upon those 120 at Pentecost, the Old Covenant went away and the vehicle for Israel to be that special people unto God went away with it. And there was a new people formed called the church. And anyone who entered into this people group and would do so not by physical birth and physical circumcision, but by spiritual birth and the spiritual circumcision of their heart, at this time, God took that unique relationship he had with Israel, whereby if they, as they lived right with God and they experienced the blessings of living right with God, the world would see that and they would come to God and say, this must be the true and living God. And it was transferred from the nation of Israel who had failed at that task to the church, who was enabled by this new covenant to perform this task. Thus, Israel was broken off from this relationship and the church was grafted in to this relationship. And so the olive tree represents a unique and personal relationship with God which facilitates blessing and is the means by which God reaches out to the unbelieving world. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a part of this. This is you. Israel was a part of that relationship with God through the Mosaic Covenant. But the New Testament church was grafted into this relationship, not through the Old Covenant, but through the New Covenant. We have this unique blessing opened up unto us by virtue of this relationship. We have been given of His Spirit. Right? This is a blessing of blessings. This is, this is the great blessing that we have been given of God's Spirit. That we have His Spirit indwelling. Thus we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Thus we can be led by the Spirit. Thus we are, we, are, we are chastened of the Lord and we are brought back into fellowship with Him. Thus we have our prayers answered. All of the blessings that come through the Spirit of God that was poured out on the day that the new covenant was ratified, initiated. And the church grafted into this, facilitated by the new covenant. Then eventually, as Paul says, Israel will be grafted back in. And of course, that's the time that we read about in Jeremiah 31 through 33, when Israel will be grafted back in through, not the old covenant, but through this new covenant. The new covenant that, that the church is already experiencing, that Paul says in Romans chapter 11, exists in part to make the Jews jealous, to make them realize that the very thing that God had promised to them and that they've been looking for has been given to this other people group, the church, that we have their God. Yeah, I put it that way. But then there's coming a time when they will gain the same access through the new covenant after the time of Jacob's trouble. And this brings us quite naturally to our third point. I hope this is making sense. First point, the new covenant is not salvation, but entered into by salvation. Second, the new covenant is not the olive tree of Romans 11, but access to that olive tree or being grafted into that olive tree. Third, the new covenant is a framework for worship, fellowship, and blessing. We see then that just as the Old Testament law was a framework for Israel in order to facilitate their worship of God, their fellowship with God, and their blessing from God, so too the new covenant is, but in such a better way, right? A better way in every way. This harkens back strongly to the points we emphasized in our first message on the new covenant. That whereas fellowship was maintained temporarily through the blood of goats and of calves under the old covenant, under the new covenant, fellowship has been fully secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, be brought back into fellowship and worship and blessing. The old covenant was rooted in a priestly mediation of gifts and sacrifices. You gave your gifts to the priest and then the priest mediated for you before God. Under the new covenant, we may come boldly to the throne of grace because the mediator has already secured for us that access. The blood of Jesus Christ has secured for us that access. Whereas the blessings of the old covenant were directly related to the fulfillment of the conditions of that covenant, which required daily, moment-by-moment effort, which was ceaseless, undermined by our own sin nature, so that as you're walking away from giving your daily sacrifice, you already need another sacrifice. That every single time an animal was plopped on that altar and burned, you were reminded once again at just how bad your sin is. Something else again had to die for you. And you know that tomorrow another one's going to have to die. And you know it. And so there's remembrance day after day, year after year. Under the new covenant, it's unconditional. The blessings are already secured. The payment is done in full on the cross. Now, it's very clear by virtue of the way I'm teaching that you, you, know, you, you understand what I believe about this, that the church is under the new covenant. But what about all those promises that aren't ours? Remember, over the last couple messages, we have added to this particular chart that shows the relationship between concepts, revealing first uh, that associated with the new covenant are these blessings, a regathering that God associates in chapters 31 and 33, and then the knowledge of God and uh, prosperity among the nations who would uh, fear God and fear them, and then, of course, forgiveness of sins. Um, We see all of these things associated with the new covenant. And these blessings aren't all for the church. Any more than any covenant given to Israel is all for the church. So the question becomes, well, if, if the blessings of the new covenant are, are, are Jewish in nature, then doesn't that mean, and they're not for the church, then doesn't that mean we're not technically under the new covenant? I mean, we don't receive, the, the land covenant's not for the church. The, the seed covenant is not for the church. We recognize the universality of the blessing covenant. Uh, through Abraham, all nations of the world would be blessed. Certainly the church doesn't need to be regathered. I mean, other than the rapture, but it doesn't need to be regathered. We're, we're, we're here. We're not lost. Uh, pro- prosperity literally contrasts the nation of Israel with other nations, showing its exclusivity. So if, if the nation of Israel will be different from the other nations, then you know, it's not talking about the church there. So what do we do with this? And this leads to our next and final point. The new covenant is the medium through which Israel's other promises are accessed, not the substance of those promises themselves. God has made many promises to Israel throughout the book of Jeremiah and throughout the Old Testament. God has promised them the land. He's promised them the kingdom. He's promised that, uh, that they would be his people, that he would be their God. And he's also made these spiritual promises to them, that he would forgive their sins, that he would establish them in righteousness, that, that, that he would give them a new heart, that they would be this kingdom of priests and a royal priesthood. But God has always maintained from beginning to end that he cannot give them the physical blessings that he promised them until they are aligned with him, until they have fulfilled the law. Until they have done right. God cannot give them the land. God cannot give them all of these blessings. He cannot give them what he has promised them. He can't give them the kingdom until they're right with him. Because the kingdom is only fitted for those who are right with God. And we talked about this quite a bit in our Revelation series. That the reason why the kingdom has not been able to come come into being yet is because they haven't accepted their king. How can they be a part of a kingdom where they've rejected the king? How can they be a part of a kingdom when their heart is not aligned with the king? So their heart has to be aligned with the king before they can have the kingdom, right? Now, as we look at these things, we see thus that God is unable to give them the promises that they seek and that he has made for them until such time as they align with him spiritually. But the Gentiles have believed. They've become heirs to the spiritual parts, to the spiritual blessings by faith. The church will not inherit those physical promises, nor have we ever been given those promises. So let's modify our chart a little bit then to understand how this actually looks. Both Jew and Gentile can seek and find God. 
They can call and he will answer. And when one submits himself to the gospel of of Jesus Christ, he enters into the new covenant. All who enter into the new covenant receive God's spirit and all of the blessings that come with having the spirit of God indwelling. A new heart, the law of God written on your heart, a desire to obey God, the ability to know God, forgiveness of sins. You become part of God's people. God becomes your God. These are all directly associated. They are new and associated directly with the new covenant. And all of these are marked signs of being born again. The experienced through the Spirit of God at the moment that we receive the Spirit of adoption that we read about in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So Jew and Gentile both enter into this state. The difference comes when all Israel shall be saved. They will be as a wholesale nation turning to Messiah by faith. The whole nation will be ushered into this spiritual state indicative of entering into the new covenant, be given of God's spirit, enter into this new covenant with God. And their entrance into the new covenant in Christ's blood will be, if I may describe it this way, the key that unlocks the door to all of their other promises. God is bound by his character, unable to give the promises that he has made to Israel to a people that are rebellious against him. He has made these promises with Israel, though, and they cannot fail. They have no conditions, right? They have no conditions. That promise that he gave to Abraham, that was not a, okay, Abraham, as long as, is, as, long as your children uh, don't become a backsliding and gainsaying people, then I'll give you these things. That wasn't a part of the covenant. The covenant was, Abraham, these are yours. Israel, this land is yours. The seed, David, is yours. God must or must fulfill these covenants or, or he has failed. But he can't give them to them until they're aligned with their king. And once they do, the nation will finally have access to all of the promises that are reserved for them. And the Gentiles, while having every access to the new covenant and its blessings, which are spiritual by nature through the spirit of God, will not follow Israel into their blessings. Blessings will be there. We will be blessed recipients of of the overflow of those blessings, but they aren't for us because they're not actually a part of the new covenant themselves. They just come after the new covenant in the same way that the new covenant is not salvation itself. It's just a natural extension. And I hope you see these distinctions here. To say that the church are recipients of the new covenant does not imply that the promises that God made exclusively to Israel are not yet Israel's or that the church has joined them in receiving all of those national promises. It can both be true that Jew and Gentile are co-heirs to the new covenant, but that we are not co-heirs to the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those national promises. And I'm just going to hit the highlights of Romans 9 through 11 to show you a few of these concepts. Again, we've, we've talked through Romans 9 through 11 in various portions before. I've still never taught directly through Romans, so we've never covered it in, in the deepest of ways. But let me read to you some of the passages that Paul gives in Romans 9 through 11, speaking about national Israel, and we'll see how this plays out. I'm sorry I'm going to be jumping around. I regret that, but for sake of time, this is the way we'll need to do it. Of course, if you have any questions, you can ask me in another form. Romans 9, verses 30 to 33, Paul writes this, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So Romans 9 tells us that the Gentiles who did not follow after righteousness attained unto righteousness because they sought it by faith. Israel fell short of it because they sought it by works rather than by faith. So faith has become the great stumbling stone of the Jews. Paul quotes in this passage from Isaiah 28, 16, And it's also that same concept is prophesied in Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, 8, verse 14. And so we're talking here about access to righteousness by faith. Now, this context carries over into Romans 10, 
where we read, and we studied this a couple of weeks ago, verses 11 through 13. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We talked about that in Jeremiah 33, the the first half. Recall that this passage comes at the end of a long string of Old Old Testament quotations. Quoting from Joel chapter 2 here, which speaks of the day of the Lord, following the pouring out of God's Spirit and the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation, and revealing that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And linking this reality not only to that time, but this is where Paul links that reality to today. And that's what we talked about within that sermon. That Paul is speaking about the new covenant here is indicated not only by context, but also by the very reality that what the Gentiles have is what the Jews have always been expecting. So that they have been driven to jealousy by the reality that the Gentiles have received that which they have always sought. We saw that in Romans 9 a moment ago. Paul reiterates this idea in Romans 10, verses 17 through 21. He says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth. That would be the Jews. And their words into the end of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? Did they not know then? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. Moses prophesied that. But Esaias is very bold and said, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands into a disobedient and gainsaying people. So Paul quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 21 there. And then he quotes Isaiah in Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, revealing that nothing that has been done here has been done outside of what God knew would happen revealing that the Gentiles have always been within the scope of God's plan and within the scope of God's intentions as it relates to the new covenant. That the Gentiles are going to receive that thing that had been promised to the Jews for so long. Indeed, God has ordained the Gentiles' entrance into the new covenant specifically to provoke Israel into jealousy so that the nation might be compelled to seek unto the covenant themselves. And if the church was not a recipient of the new covenant, then what jealousy would there be? If if what we had is not what God had promised to Israel, then why why would that provoke Israel to jealousy? Right? I mean... It's supposed to be theirs. That's what jealousy is. Something that they, want, that, they, that they believe is theirs by right that we have. If what we have is not theirs by right, then why would it provoke them unto jealousy? We must be a part of the new covenant. We've talked through a portion of Romans 11 already speaking to the teachings as it relates to Paul's illustration of the olive tree. He would then go on to reiterate to the readers that though for now the Gentiles have this righteousness and Israel has fallen short, there is coming that day when Israel will receive that unto which they have been promised. The same righteousness that now works in the Gentiles. Romans 11 verses 25 to 29. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Don't get too proud, church. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance." Paul specifically references the new covenant here. And at this time, God will take away their sins. That's what Jeremiah says is a promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. That at that time, I will forgive your sins. Just as he has taken away our sins, the fullness of the Gentiles will come into the covenant. Then the blindfold over Israel will be removed and Israel will enter into what God has always promised. So then what we find is that the promises of God to Abraham are fully realized not in but through the new covenant. Every promise God has ever made to Israel will be accessed when they enter into this covenant. 
We are the children of Abraham by faith, and so heirs to the blessings of the covenant by faith. Salvation from sin, a new heart, the adoption of sons, eternal life. We will be a part of the kingdom, which was theirs, right? And is for them by right. But we are not the children of Abraham in the flesh. And there's coming a day when the nation will repent. They will turn to their Messiah. And having all of the spiritual uh, blessings thus accessed by the new covenant, they will then be able to enter into the physical blessings that God has promised for them. Now, this message was intended to clarify our relationship to the new covenant and explain its deeper implications. But we dare not step out of this message without an application of sorts. I oftentimes feel a little uncomfortable with strongly academic messages, as many of you know. I feel like it's necessary from time to time. There are certain times where you get more of them kind of in a bunch, and then I feel really bad um, because I am a preacher that truly loves to exhort you unto something give you something to go away and to work on and to think about. But let me just say, don't allow the academics of that moment and us trying to understand our relationship here to cloud our minds from the realities of what the new covenant is intended to do for us. Agree with me or don't agree with me on our relationship to the new covenant. What we know is we have new life in Christ. We have forgiveness of sins. We have been given a heart to serve the Lord. We have been empowered by the Spirit of God to do His will. We have been filled with the Spirit of God, bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God unto obedience. We are born again unto a lively hope, given that spirit of adoption, heirs to the world that is to come, co-heirs with Christ, saved from our sins, and God prophesied of the coming of this day. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12 through 12, tells us that the prophets of old wrote about the day when Christ would suffer and the glory that should then follow. And they were curious, very curious about that day. They would write to Israel about the day when the Gentiles would come in. They would write to Israel about the day when God would give them the new heart. And they would see, because they were learned men and they had the insight of the Spirit of God, they would see that there was going to come this day when the Messiah must suffer. And, and Daniel, writing in Daniel chapter 9 about the 70th week, and he gets to the end of the 69th week, and it says, then must Messiah be cut off. I wonder what he was thinking on that day when he, when he wrote, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Messiah would be killed. I wonder what Isaiah, what was going through Isaiah's mind and in his heart as he wrote Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. What must have been going through his mind on that day? And so Peter, as he lays this foundation that the prophets have longed to understand what we know in full, he says this in verses 13 through 16. Wherefore, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Look, All of this stuff, all of these academics, all of the ins and outs, all of the pieces that I tried to put you to to put together in your mind, the puzzle pieces of understanding our relationship to the new covenant, all of that is well and good in its place, and I hope it, it helped you understand the Word of God better. But at the end of the day, what we know is that what we have is that new heart. What we have is a personal relationship with the Lord. And what we are called to do with it as those who have been grafted into that olive tree of God's purpose to rightly represent him to the world is that we are called to be holy. For he is holy. We are called not to fashion ourselves according to the world, right? That was what the law, the Old Testament law said to Israel, don't be like the world. Don't be like the heathen that are around you. Don't be like the pagans that are around you. Don't look like them. Don't act like them. Don't pursue the same pleasures that they pursue. Be distinct. It's not, that doesn't always mean different. I might be walking down the street and I might not look different from the unbeliever standing next to me. 
but I will be distinct from him. I'll be driven to do what I do by different motivations. I will have a, a perspective, a worldview. I'll be looking at this world through a different set of lenses. I will be filtering my decisions through the word of God. I will be serving something higher than myself. And in the same way that the Old Testament law was intended to make Israel distinct, the covenant that has, over, that has, has replaced that law, the new covenant, is also intended to make you distinct. To not be fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. In that time when you were ignorant and you pursued the lust of your flesh in your ignorance, that was then, this is now, that was you then, this is you now, that was you without Christ, this is you with Christ. You're not that person anymore. So don't be that person. Now, for some of you, you don't even know that person. You were five years old, six years old, right? But you were still that person. And what you can't know in your memory, you can at least know by faith. Don't be that person. Be holy. For he is holy. How are you doing at that this evening? How are you doing at living out the purpose into which you were grafted into that olive tree? How are you doing at being distinct from the world that is around you? Don't lot yourself in with their carnality. Don't lot yourself in with their lust. Don't lot yourself... Don't, don't be that. We are that city on a hill. We are those ones that the unbelieving world comes to, or we go to them, and we say... Have you heard the news? It's good news. That's what the word gospel means. The bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is Christ died for our sins. The bad news is you're wallowing in the misery of your own sin and your own lust. The good news is you can be saved from that. I have been saved from that. Come join me. Come and see. Is that how you're living tonight? Are you living in the distinctions of the relationship into which you have been bought by Christ? It's an unconditional covenant. Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Once you're in, you're in. But it also brings with it a relationship and an expectation, a duty to be holy. For He is holy. How are you doing this evening at living this obedient, separated, sober, pure life? Which we can only do because we receive this new heart. Because we have the Spirit of God enabling us to do it. Because we know the Lord and we are His people and He is our God. And we are strengthened by His Spirit to live day by day in a manner that the Old Testament saints could only dream of. Are you taking advantage of it? Are you walking in it? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.